Hey everyone, if you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. Joining us today is Mr. Kirk Nurmi. He's a formerly infamous death penalty attorney, as well as a cancer survivor, who is currently a court TV legal commentator, author, performer, and aspiring actor. So welcome to the show, Kirk. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me on this afternoon. Oh, yeah. It's an absolute pleasure um, to have you on. And I'm really curious to hear about a lot of things that you mentioned in your somewhat short but very uh, thought-provoking bio. So I think we should just start with, since this show is about death, um, the death penalty part. So can you tell us a little bit about your career? Sure. I was a criminal defense attorney for uh, almost 15 years. I spent... uh, the bulk of it, you know, as a public defender trying regular, what we might call run-of-the-mill cases. Uh, after I got some experience, I kind of reached a crossroads in my life of what I was going to do with the rest of my career. And at that point in time, uh, instead of going into private practice, I made the decision to move to the death penalty unit, a unit in within the public defender's office that only handles death penalty cases. And I was personally opposed to the death penalty, and that kind of uh, motivated me to chart that course. And then that ultimately led to the infamous case, the state of Arizona versus Jody Arias, which most people associate my name with, that became such a uh, sensation in Arizona and really across the world uh, back in 2013. Wow. Yeah, that's intense. Um so let's work backwards because this show is about how our views on death affect the way we live our life. So we like to ask our guests um, what their view on death is. But before I get to that, I'd actually like to jump to the next part, which is, can you explain in your own words why you were opposed to the death penalty? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's just a basic philosophical reason that if we, as a society, have determined that killing is wrong, and rightly so, I believe it's no made no less wrong by the fact that it might be taken out uh, on behalf of the government uh, or through the government on my behalf. So I believe that is, and that's part of the reason. And then I think the other reason is being a death penalty lawyer and being familiar with the process and knowing that people have been both wrongly condemned to death and later freed, famously in Arizona, the case of Ray Crone, and also that the death penalty has been implemented and later found out to be uh, incorrectly applied. And of course, there is simply no going back. That is a sentence which cannot be commuted. That's a great, excellent answer. Um, Yeah, that's uh, fascinating. And actually, you said a lot of things I think that people gleam gleam over when they discuss this um, on both sides of the argument. So uh, most especially, you talk about the fact that point blank, uh, killing is wrong, and you're not supposed to do it. So let's get into that part of it. have you always felt that way? Is that an intuitive belief of yours? Uh, what what sort of basis do you have for that? Yeah, I don't. I guess you'd call it maybe a spiritual, metaphysical belief. I mean, I think in general we're here to love and support each other, and then you know, obviously killing is wrong, and I and I don't think we're doing that. Obviously, we've decided collectively killing is wrong, right? We don't want to kill each other. But I don't think the proper criminal justice response to murder is murder, and it's not one and the same. Absolutely. And actually, just because I briefly dabbled in law, and I'm always curious when experts are talking about it, 
Is there a legal definition between murder and killing? Well, I mean, killing can be a non-criminal act. For example, if you kill in self-defense, something like that. I mean, obviously, you can kill without the intent. Murder is typically involves an intentional act to kill, and that's really the distinction. So then would it be fair by that legal definition that when the government kills someone with intent, it is actually murder? Well, and and to me, yeah, from a moral sense, to me, yes. But in a strict legal sense, it is a justifiable killing, like a self, like, almost like a self-defense. So obviously, then it's not murder because it's a legally sanctioned sentence. That makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, so I mean, I I was dancing around it, but I would like to hear your actual uh, belief. And everyone shares it on the show, so it's okay if you don't have one or if you don't care. But um, what do you think actually happens when you die? What do you think will happen to you specifically? You know, I tend to, uh, well, I tend to think it happens to all of us. I tend to believe that we, uh, we're kind of here as souls to learn that inhabit a human body, and we're here to learn and grow as our souls learn and grow. And then we return to dimensions that we were once at in that point in time and kind of learn from what we have down here. And we just don't remember it when we come down. That strikes a great chord of resonance with me. And it um, can actually be explained by a lot of different versions in philosophy of like the belief in all of this. So I, I'm curious to know, um, did you always feel this way? Was it learned? Were you religious at some point? No, I think it's, I think it's an evolution. I mean, I think as, as we grow and evolve, you know, you mentioned in the introduction that I was a cancer survivor and, you know, looking at death as a death penalty attorney, because each death penalty case is involves a first degree murder. So I see the death of a person, a stranger, right? And then I meet the person accused of killing them. When I had cancer, I had a six month look and I say six months because by the, the, the diagnosis and the the rounds of chemo and everything else, I had a look at my own mortality. And really it was all, all those things combined because we're obviously all processes of everything that we've we've gathered throughout our lives. I began to look at life a different way. I began to kind of go under my own transformation and spiritual, metaphysically, that sort of thing. So the short answer to your question is no, I didn't always feel that way because like a lot of people, I was trained on the God as a judge in the sky type of figure, right? A lot of that traditional, you know, guy who's going to render judgment on you, whether you go to the good place or the bad place. And that never resonated with me. And as I started going on my spiritual journey in my late 40s uh, and connecting to my mortality, those things kind of became a part of that and started to make more sense to me than than some of those things that um, I was I was taught as a child. Wow. I can tell you're not only a professional attorney, but that you're also working in television and uh, with acting because your answers are very good, very concise, um, and very explanative. So thank you. It's a pleasure to interview you. Oh, well, thank you. I, I try. <laughs> no, it's great. And also, I really appreciate yeah. the amount of thought you give to things. So I'm in my early 40s, and I had my spiritual crisis in my 30s, and it was very similar to what you described. And so I'm actually curious, um, prior to that, did you have still like a strong connection to spirituality like even if it was god in the sky even if all that kind of stuff did you have like deeper moments of personal reflection or were you something different than that i think it was something different than that i don't think i'd really connected to that part of it i mean you know because i think so many of us are steered away from that right i mean we're steered we're we're more geared towards the human experience there's a 
consumerism to it. There's an achievement aspect to it. Um, those things we do on Earth, and I think we're more tied to that uh, than the things that were going to happen afterwards. And I think for a lot of my life, I was like, well, I don't really know. And so, you know, I guess there's nothing I can do. So you just live my life and on earth as best I could. But I think that definition of best I could kind of changed over time with that spiritual connection. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so now with your current mind frame and everything we've discussed, um, what do you feel not in a legal sense, not as a, a former attorney. Um, are you still currently an attorney? No, I'm not. I'm, I, uh, when I, when, when cancer entered my life, I went through a process. I was kind of fighting with the bar about a book I'd read, uh, written and, and standing up for myself against my former client. And um, part of that process, part of that look at my mortality and everything I went through meant that to me that, you know, if I was going to work to to fight to save my life, and really it was an if for me, because when I got the cancer diagnosis in 2015, it was shortly after the Arius trial had concluded. I was stressed. I was beaten down. My name had been drugged through the mud, and I had a disconnect from the practice of law, which is something I wanted to do literally since grade school. So there was there was a big if for me whether or not I was just going to let cancer take its course. And I made the choice to go into the chemotherapy chair and endure the chemotherapy with a promise to myself that I wouldn't live my remaining years the way I had my prior years. And that meant a shift away from the law. That meant asking for disbarment when the state bar came after me because I felt like my mission was elsewhere and I felt like my happiness was elsewhere. And that's when I made that shift really with that spiritual journey to make happiness my beacon instead of some of the more traditional measures of success. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's incredible. You're, uh, you're like a dream guest for the show because this is exactly what I want to explore is how different people make these connections or maybe when they don't or what causes us to self-reflect and change. And I'm not advocating with this show any one change. I'm just advocating reflection. So yeah. It's, it's amazing the experiences that come to us. Um, and actually, you mentioned this idea that maybe we're like a soul that's in a human body here to learn. And that's something that gels really well with my world beliefs. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm curious, do you think like your lesson would be more about facing cancer and with that big if and then the decision you make? Or do you think that's actually just merely a stepping stone to a much bigger lesson that you're trying to learn? Well, I think it's, it's merely a stepping stone. I think part of my growth and my journey was to kind of look back at different instances in my life and kind of draw some connections to it because, you know, and I think this is something we all do because not only, you know, I believe that our experiences, while the details may be different, the commonality or the themes are really the same. There's a lot of common themes that run through everyone's life. And for some of us, when we, I think when we reflect on it, we can see those themes, not only in others, but in ourselves when we really, you know, look at the man in the mirror, the human in the mirror. And once we connect to that, we can start seeing a repetition of lessons, like lessons might be tried to taught one way, and then we don't get them. So the universe tries to teach us another. And I believe ultimately, for me, that was a matter of self-worth. 
And and that's uh, something that a lot of people battle with in different ways, and that's what I meant about that commonality. But for me, I think it had to do a lot with self-worth and because of the public shaming that I endured and, and, and overcoming that. That's incredible. Um, I have I have so many questions to ask. Oh, okay, awesome. <laughs> so with that said, um, what is it like to feel that way and to know that these lessons are what we're learning and sometimes you return? And then you referred to the fact that the universe gives us another chance. So some people, when they talk about this concept, feel that we are the universe and we give it to ourselves. Do you see a binary? Do you see a split? No, I don't really see a split. When I talk about the universe, though, I also talk about lessons. And obviously, you know, I think we play a part in the lessons that, that, that we teach ourselves, right? But, but I also think there's other forces out there that are, that are a part of that teaching. You know, I've heard some people say, and I think it's right, you know, the universe will give you a nudge when that doesn't work, it'll, you know, hit you over the head. And for me, like, I think when I went, go back to, you know, the time I was disenfranchised with the practice of law, I took the whole summer off after the areas trial, I was going to travel with my wife, make up for time. And I was hoping I was going to reconnect to that desire to practice law. And it never came. And I was going to resign myself to uh, returning to the practice of law in September, you know, the ASU starts up, it starts getting a little cooler and, and business starts coming back for criminal defense lawyers. That's when I got the cancer diagnosis. That was the hammer over the head that kept me away from the practice of law. Cause I probably would have returned to it and would probably still be doing that today and wouldn't have gone through the entire growth process I went to. Now, could I say that I created that for myself? Some might make that argument. Um, but I think, it could be it could be a combination of both, right? Ourselves and and the universe, those spirits that guide us, what have you. Yeah, and so this experience, this uh, major trial, the Arius one. Um, I don't want to get into the details. I don't care about them. Um, I, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm more than sympathetic to everything that you've been alluding to. But I do want to know more about with this idea of lessons and stuff. What? Uh, what are like the heavy lessons of interacting with people who may or may not, you said it was when I meet the accused and I love that phrasing. Instead of talking about whether they're guilty or innocent, it doesn't matter. The fact is these are people at like a very crisis ridden moment. So how does it feel to have interacted with so many people at that pure crisis moment in their life? Yeah. I mean, there's certainly different crisis moments, right? Like, you know, you get, you go through law school and you come out and you learn the law and you, 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 you get your briefcase and you get your little badge and you go out and you're a lawyer. And then you do meet people at all these different crisis points. And the ultimate crisis point is, you know, being uh, accused of murder, right? Or having committed a murder. And because no one probably thinks they're going to be that. I mean, there's exceptions, right? Serial killers, those things like that. But, and it, it is a different kind of dynamic um, and it's certainly one that's hard to explain, not only as a lawyer who's involved in it, but you think about it, there is also a fascination with true crime and those who kill in particular, right? We see, you know, you can turn on the TV. I've, I've been a part of some of these documentaries where you see true crime documentaries and people are fascinated with the act of murder for, for whatever reason. And, and if you ask me why, I tell you, I have no clue. But it is an interesting inflection point because not only is the person, you know, 
dealing with what they have done, but they're dealing with the potential consequences of what they've done. And particularly if I was their attorney, that means one consequence of that might be the end of their life, the state wanting to put a premature end to their life. And I should say, too, it's not just a matter of that person. It's a matter of their entire family. I mean, no matter who, and I'm talking about the accused here, no matter who is facing the death penalty, they are always somebody's son or daughter or brother or sister or what have you. And that is something that factors in the equation as well. I mean, I remember one of the first cases uh, I had as a death penalty attorney is that I had to tell a father that his son, who was in the early 20s, had no criminal history before was facing the death penalty. And that is just, a, you know, that is an insight into the world of this this death penalty system that we were talking about earlier that most people don't have. I mean, I, yeah, that's life-changing as I hear it from your mouth. And I've only thought about it recently, actually, with a lot of the media exposure over like recent abductions and things like that, because something recently has changed for me with the way we interact with media, not the way media interacts with us, but um, there's like a, you feel like you're not participating in society anymore if you don't know what they're talking about. And so you lose this connection that you're talking about with how something should probably be more private. And, uh, and so it's, it's interesting to me because you are helping people and your heart is clearly in it. And you, I mean, it's obvious anyone listening to this, they're going to resonate with you. And it's not about uh, the words you're speaking. It's in the tone of your voice even. So you're also, according to your bio, an aspiring actor. And I'm actually curious about the intersection of like the public I and being like in that world because you're in it and you're, you're, you know, I don't know how you use the word famous, but I would say you're famous. And so how, how is that working for you? Like with your spiritual beliefs, the, uh, this, the element of having aspirations, which is human, but also healthy, but then also the knowledge that like there's deeper spiritual urges in you. Yeah. You know, and, and, and some of that I think is, is something that, I, that I will never know, but I tell you that, the, I always believe in inspiration and, and going back to what I said, you know, in, in when I was contemplating the idea of not living my remaining years the way I had my former years, I made happiness my beacon and I started trying to decide, well, what would make me happy? And I started, you know, working as a life coach for lawyers because having been in the legal profession, I knew that there were a lot of lawyers that were unhappy, abusing substances, that sort of thing. I started doing public and motivational speaking. And I recently, uh, uh, of course, in my luck in the COVID era, uh, started a one-man show called Overcoming Jody Arias. And one of my jokes in that show is the idea that if, you know, people believe that I believe Miss Arias' story, her accusations against her victim, that I must have some untapped acting, acting ability. And, you know, I go on TV, I, I comment on legal cases. I've done many interviews. I've been on Dr. Oz, different things like that. And I really enjoy it. And so I thought, well, why not give it a whirl? And this is one of those things where, like, the universe responds because I think within a couple of days I had been cast in something. And, and, you know, now I'm, you know, later this month, I'm going to be filming here in Phoenix and 
and I've got a few more gigs. I got to play a senator off in Texas. So, you know, it's just a lot of fun. And then that happiness becomes my beacon and, and that becomes part of the issue. Now, whether there's an overarching purpose to that, there probably is, whether it happens or doesn't happen. But, um, you know, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to know that at this point in time. Right now, to me, it's just fun. And then I can learn along the way. That's great. And actually getting back to the more spiritual side. So the the person who's going to know someday, is that person Kirk or is that person a different entity, which you call your soul? Like, how do you see that? Well, you know, some would say it's one and the same and that we just have don't have that complete access to our higher selves. And that's that's part of it. Um, obviously, you know, you and I have our souls, to, in my opinion, and, and there's many others out there. So, like I say, I keep going back to this idea that I feel like it's a combination because I don't think, you know, even when we talk about on the earthly plane, we do nothing ourselves, right? I mean, the, the, the phones that you and I are talking on, somebody else made. The roads we drive on to work, somebody else made, you know? So I think we do everything in combination of our soul's interests what our inspired action is, what our, when we follow our bliss. Right. And, but I also think there's others along the way to help guide us that are put in our path to help guide us. That's very cool. It's very beautiful and uplifting. Um, let's, let's actually get in a little bit of the part of your career where you said you were doing, um, life coaching and helping and mentoring and giving speeches. Cause I can tell that you're going to be good at that. Um, how does it feel to like service and give back like that? Does it, uh, does it move the needle as much as like, say the bliss from acting? Well, you know, they're just, they're completely different endeavors. I think, I mean, I had just have so much fun with acting um, and it doesn't necessarily have to mean anything, right? Like, you know, maybe it'll inspire somebody in a way that I don't understand. Like, you know, a lot of people watch TV and they see, they might be inspired by a performance. They want to do that job or this, you know, other job, what have you. And it's something that I'll never know, you know, the behind the camera, I don't see the audience, whether I'm, whether I'm acting or whether I'm doing legal commentary, I don't see the audience. Such is not the case when I'm coaching or speaking, right? I see the audience, I interact with them, whether it's from a distance when I'm speaking or whether it's one-on-one when I'm coaching. And there's that great kind of feedback, that impact uh, you can have. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm also an author. I've written eight books and, and, uh, you know, that there's that kind of disconnect as well. So, um, like it, with acting, you know, I don't know who's reading my book and I don't know how they're reacting to it, but it's just so fun to think about the impact that I'm having, whatever it is, whether I can, whether I can see it after a coaching session, feel it after a coaching session or have no idea about it because, you know, it's great. I'll, you know, you write a book and you put it out there and, or you do an acting performance, you put it out there and you have no idea if anybody reads it, watches it. And then through the magic of social media, someone will tell you how much that affected their life. And that's been, that's been really cool, especially with my favorite book, Defend Your Greatness, which is, which really, I think has helped a lot of people um, in their lives. And that's just so satisfying to me. Wow. That's really cool. You're a great person. I'm really happy that I got to meet you and interview you. Oh, thank you. So I got one question before my very last question, which would be, you mentioned having fun. Okay. Uh, so before, I'm, I'm just calling it like your spiritual moment, but before the cancer diagnosis and what you went through, what was your definition of fun versus what is your definition of fun now? Like how could you relate that to people listening who are on one side or the other? You know, I think, I think fun back then um, was 
Well, you know, it's not always that different, right? It might be a little more extreme version of some of the same thing. I mean, I like going to sporting events. I like going to Vegas. Uh, I was a big fan of, of champagne brunches, that sort of thing. And that was fun, right? It was that vacation, that mentality. And, um, you know, with COVID, it's hard to say, but I think now my fun, it might be a little more restrained, but I also try to have it in everything I do. You know, so much of what's, what's put out there maybe in the personal development world, the self-help world is, you know, work-life balance, right? And to me, that's just a false equivalency because, you know, work is bad and tough and, and somehow there's this, I don't know, this bravado or this, this prize. We, we honor being busy. We honor being overworked. We honor being stressed out. And I just think that's just not, and then we honor the wild play, right? Work hard, play hard kind of thing, right? And we honor that wild play. And I was closer to that, you know, spectrum. And now the way I see it, it's just all about having fun. You know, I, before we got on the phone, I was sitting in my backyard in beautiful Phoenix. It's 80 something degrees running my lines, remember, memorizing my lines. That's work, but that's also fun. So there's just this blur. There isn't really a work-life balance. There's just life, and it's fun. That is truly great advice for anyone of any age, and uh, maybe not in every culture, but in most of the cultures I've encountered. Um, well, I my last question for you was going to just kind of be the normal one I ask people, which is like, what do you want to tell people? I feel like you've said a lot of important and profound things. So you can pick whatever it is you want to say, but I, I do – feel like maybe there's one more thing that we could talk about as far as with how we can develop compassion and sympathy for the accused, even when we think they're guilty, because I think that's something I would like to see change in, in my view of American society is, is something in that area. So I don't know if you want to talk about that or if there's just something totally different you want to talk about, but you have the floor. This is the last question. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly I think I'm, I'm going to maybe going to answer both those questions. How about that? Um, I think, Empathy is something that is in far too short a supply in our society, whether it's the person that cuts you off in the road, whether it's the person in front of you in line at the grocery store, wherever it is, empathy is in short supply and we need to increase that supply. As far as what I would want to tell the audience, there's this great question that I think is the one of the most powerful questions we can ask ourselves every single day, and that is, who do you want to be today? Now, your older listeners, see, I grew up in the 80s. I was in high school. They'll recognize that. That's a song, an Oingo Boingo song. Who do you want to be today? And it's just, it's just whimsical. But when you think about the powerful philosophical example of that or, or question that that poses, because it ties you to the present, it says, who do you want to be today? And you may not be able to get all your goals today. Like, you know, I'm on a weight loss transformation show and I've been going through this transformation, right? And it doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes when I'm struggling, I remind myself, who do I want to be today? Do I want to be somebody who's giving up or somebody who's punting on a particular workout? Or do I want to be somebody who's working towards his intentions? And I always want to be somebody who's working towards my intentions. And if we start asking ourselves that question in different circumstances, do we want to be miserable or do we want to be happy? Do we want to be grateful for our job? Because even if we hate it, it puts food on the table. 
who do we want to be today? Do we want to be a person that's grumpy or projects our own disappointment onto others? And if you ask yourself that question, I think it'll start making changes in you because you probably want to be, you want to aspire to be who you want to be and you start taking those intentions to do that, you get closer to being there. Wow. Well, that was profound, as were all of your answers to my questions today. So um, Kirk Nermy from Phoenix, uh, author of Defend Your Greatness, along with, uh, I think, eight other books. KirkNermy.com. That's where everybody should go if they want to learn more about me. There you go. Perfect. So uh, to our audience, please visit that. And to Kirk, to you personally, thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin. And uh, to our audience, I'd like to reiterate what he said. Empathy is in short supply. So do what you can to wake up every day and tell yourself, who do I want to be today? And you have been listening to Coffin Talk. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon.